Hello, this is Micah Utrecht, Associate Editor at Jacobin Magazine. Just wanted to say a quick word of welcome to Dan Denver and his podcast, The Dig to Jacobin. Uh, Dan is a fantastic journalist who I've known for a long time, who's covered everything from dirty cops in Philadelphia to the failures of our immigration system to rank and file teachers union reformers. And we're extremely happy to have him and his podcast as part of the Jacobin family. There's going to be much more audio-visual content from Jacobin in 2017, including a podcast hosted by me and writer-organizer R.L. Stevens. You can find that, as well as audio from different events that we have done, like issue release parties or talks with authors, on the Jacobin iTunes channel. So please subscribe and rate and review us. If you want to support The Dig, you can find a Patreon account in the show description or on The Dig's Facebook and Twitter pages. And to support Jacobin, visit jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Thanks. Here's Dan. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from AS220 in Providence, Rhode Island. Donald Trump has nominated Betsy DeVos, a free-market, far-right Christian billionaire dedicated to privatizing public schools to be his education secretary. In her confirmation hearing, she made it painfully clear that she has little understanding of public education aside from her dedication to destroying it. So public, public charter, or private K-12 schools, if they receive taxpayer funding, they should meet the same accountability standards. Yes, they should be very transparent with the information and parents should have that information first and foremost. And if confirmed, will you insist upon that equal accountability in any K-12 school or educational program that receives federal funding, whether public, public charter, or private? I support accountability. Equal accountability for all schools that receive federal funding. I support accountability. Okay, is that a yes or a no? That's a, I support accountability. Do you not want to answer my question? I support accountability. Okay, let me ask you this. I think all schools that receive taxpayer funding should be equally accountable. Do you agree with me or not? Well, they don't. They're not today. I, but I think they should. Do you agree with me or not? Well, no, because... You they, don't they, agree they, with me. Let me move to my next question. She is the heir to an auto parts fortune, and her husband, Dick, is the heir to a fortune derived from the direct sales company Amway, which the FTC at one point decided was not a pyramid scheme. Interestingly, she is also the brother of Eric Prince, who founded the infamous mercenary army Blackwater, and is now, according to a report from The Intercept, quietly advising the Trump administration. The couple, thanks to their money and relentless ideological drive, are heavy-duty power players in Michigan politics, where they have helped wreak havoc on Detroit public schools. In many ways, this oligarch's nomination is the extreme and cartoonesque outcome of decades of bipartisan, corporate-aligned policy that pushed charters and high-stakes testing and attacked teachers' unions that stood in their way. Today, we're joined by historian Diane Ravitch, one of the country's leading scholars of education policy and a vocal critic of corporate reform efforts that promote privatization and high-stakes testing as the solution to problems largely created by segregation, poverty, and funding inequity. Diane, welcome to The Dig. Great to be here. Thank you. You've long had your eye on Betsy DeVos. Tell me about what she has accomplished in Michigan and through her heavy financial support for so-called ed reform groups around the country. Well, uh, Betsy DeVos uh, is a very committed Christian evangelical fundamentalist billionaire. I mean, usually all those terms don't go together. 
but she was born into a family uh, that was a billionaire family. Her father was in the auto parts business in Michigan, and she married uh, a billionaire. And so this is a family that has in excess of $5 billion. And I mentioned the money first because it's key to who she is. Uh, the DeVos family has spent uh, many, many millions of dollars uh, funding school choice initiatives, funding politicians uh, who support school choice, um, and funding all kinds of organizations that are anti-union, anti-gay, um, and, and, and are pro-kids uh, being in Christian religious schools. They, they support a lot of Christian uh, schools. So her, what she's accomplished in Michigan is that she has funded uh, she's funded a lot of choice candidates, and she's gotten a very compliant legislature. Uh, at one point, she even knocked off some moderate Republicans who were Republican but not as strongly pro-voucher as she is. Uh, the, she, she and her husband, Dick DeVos, funded a referendum in the year 2000 to rewrite the Michigan Constitution and take out a clause that prohibits uh, sending public money to religious schools. And it was defeated overwhelmingly. Uh, the vote was 69% to 31%. And then uh, Dick DeVos ran for governor in 2006, and he was defeated. But since then, they have put their money into uh, organizations that fund politicians who are going to support school choice. They Not only in Michigan, but across the country, and they've had a lot of success in promoting choice is somehow a good idea. Uh, I think that the best way to look at Betsy DeVos is to look at the results in Michigan, which have been awful. I mean, Michigan has been sliding down the national scale uh, ever since the DeVos philosophy took over the legislature. And her, her particular experiment is Detroit, uh, which is overloaded with charter schools, and Detroit's the lowest performing urban district in the country. Tell me a little bit about what the charterization of Detroit public schools has looked like and what the DeVos's role in that has been. Well, there, there are now more uh, charter schools in Detroit than there are. There are more students in charter schools than in public schools. And there's a general consensus, uh, certainly the Detroit Free Press has documented this, uh, that the charter schools do worse than the public schools or no better. There are some, some that are high-performing, some that are low-performing, but it's uh, impossible to say that Detroit is better off because of the large number of charters. Uh, there's a proposal that was made by and supported by the DeVos family to close another 38 public schools, most of which will be in Detroit. So there, Detroit has not reached the level of New Orleans. New Orleans is the only district in the country where there are, I think, only five public schools left in the whole city. The rest of it is all charter. But um, Washington, D.C. is half charter. Uh, Detroit is more than half charter, and there doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to have mo moved the needle on student achievement uh, at all. And the DeVosses, uh, they also fought an effort to um, tighten up regulations around charter schools in Michigan as well. Correct? Right, right. What what happened was that the uh, Detroit newspaper, the Free Press, uh, did a year long investigation of charters in Michigan. The first thing to know about charters in Michigan is that 80% of them are run for profit. And uh, after its investigation, the Detroit Free Press said that charters are a billion-dollar industry, $1 billion a year, and they have no accountability and no transparency. Uh, they, Because so many of them are for profit, 
They don't open their books. Uh, nobody knows where the money is going. There have been many scandals of uh, people stealing. Um, the uh, Governor Snyder, who's a very uh, conservative Republican, uh, got the legislature to pass a, a, a law allowing districts to be taken over by emergency managers, basically suspending democracy and saying because you don't, your test scores are low because you're you're a whole fiscally, uh, the state's taking you over. That has been a disaster. And in one of the districts, they gave uh, the state emergency manager gave the whole, I think it was Muskegon Heights, they gave the whole district over to a for-profit charter company, which tried and after two years said, we can't make any money here and we're leaving. And they just left, uh, having demolished the public schools and leaving everyone in a quandary about what charter school is going to take this over when there's no money in it for them. Um, in fact, the, the deficit actually went up while the charter school was there. So it's, it, Michigan is a mess, and the DeVosses have been deeply implicated in shaping the education policy around the, uh, around the idea of choice as being the answer. But Michigan is, I would say, proof positive that choice not only doesn't make things better, it makes them worse. And they've also spread their financial largesse or- all around the country, not just in Michigan, correct? Through through a variety of, of groups? Yes, they have um, two different kinds of organizations. One is um, called a C- C3 under the uh, Internal Revenue Service Code, where the there's a C3 and a C4. One of them is political, that's the C4, and the other is non-political, and they are just advocates for choice. And so they have... Uh, both of them are spreading money across the country, propagandizing for school choice, uh, and also putting millions of dollars into political campaigns to elect people to state legislatures and to school boards who are in favor of vouchers and charters and not in favor of public schools. And the thing that's so really bizarre about the nomination of Betsy DeVos is, first of all, she has no education experience at all. She's a lobbyist for school choice. Uh, she's a lobbyist for privatization. Uh, but she has no ideas, whatever, about how to make schools run better. Her only idea is to give kids ways to leave public schools and go someplace else where they might get a worse education. Um, the, the other thing that's really weird is that she will be, if confirmed, and I'm assuming she'll be confirmed. I'm hoping she won't be, but I'm assuming she will be because she's given millions of dollars to members of Congress, especially to the members of the Senate. She's given money to 10 out of the 12 Republicans on the Senate committee that is evaluating her. So this is someone who spreads money around very freely to the Republican Party. She was, after all, the chairman of the Michigan Republican Party. But she'll be the first secretary of education ever who is hostile to public schools. And it's particularly odd because somewhere over 85% of our kids are in public schools, and she has no idea about how to make schools better, uh, just to, to create competition and to demolish this system that most people think is working pretty well in most places. As, as Bernie Sanders said during the uh, confirmation hearing, uh, do you think you'd really be sitting here if you weren't a billionaire who gave so much money to so many politicians? Yes, and she had the, I, I think, the chutzpah to say, uh, oh, yes, but she actually has no credentials. And I think the most stunning uh, rebuke to Betsy DeVos is that some close to 3,000 people who were 
uh, either students or alumni of the small Christian college she attended, uh, wrote a letter saying she should not be confirmed, uh, that these are people who say that, you know, we understand that most of the kids in this country go to public schools, and we're trained to educate them. Uh, and she, Ms. DeVos, has no training whatever, doesn't know anything about education, and we don't believe that the public school system should be uh, become part of our Christian mission. I mean, we believe in our faith, uh, but we don't believe our faith belongs in public schools, and we don't want to destroy public schools. So here, here are the people who attended the same college she went to, uh, to which she gives millions of dollars every year, and almost 3,000 of them said she should not be confirmed because she's not qualified. Public education is largely funded and administered at the state and local level. What kind of damage can DeVos, Trump, and their allies in Congress do with the tools and authorities at their disposal? Well, I think that they, uh, Trump and DeVos will have learned a very important lesson from Arne Duncan, who was President Obama's secretary. Uh, he was given, Arne Duncan was given $5 billion in discretionary money and, and told, uh, this is your money to reform American education. So he held a competition, and he said to all the states, if you want to be eligible for this competition, you have to have more charter schools. Uh, you have to adopt the Common Core standards. Uh, you have to be prepared to close down schools that are, have low test scores. And he had a series of, uh, you have to have a longitudinal database tracking every student from cradle to grave. So almost every state said, I'll do all those things because I want to be eligible to get some of the money. And so something like 45 or 46 states applied changed their laws to meet his conditions, and 18 of them won money. So he was able to use $5 billion to leverage dramatic change. I mean, a lot of states didn't have charter schools, and now most states do. Um, and almost every state has adopted the Common Court to be eligible for uh, money that most of them didn't receive. And so what Trump has said is, I will take $20 billion from existing federal programs. I won't put new money into education. But I'll take $20 billion and I'll make it available to states that are willing to use it for school choice. Now, he said uh, they can use it for public schools if they want, but they can use it for charters or vouchers or homeschooling or cyber charters. Now, I guess it's important to point out that there is no evidence at all after 20 to 25 years with charters and vouchers uh, that they produce better results than public schools. Uh, there is a lot of evidence that when you give money to charters and vouchers, there will be corruption because they're not supervised. And uh, there is abundant evidence evidence that cyber charters are actually bad for education. Uh, kids that, that go to cyber charters, and Pennsylvania is like the uh, state that has the most cyber charters, a cyber charter being a, an online school. There's no oversight, and uh, there are now, I believe, uh, two cases in Pennsylvania where the cyber charter founders admitted having siphoned off millions of dollars. They had so much money rolling in that they were able to uh, do all kinds of fancy tricks and, and put it in their own private bank accounts, put, put the, all of this money in, uh, in their own private accounts. So there is a lot of corruption that comes with deregulating public funding and having no one no oversight for it, and a lot of people who are attracted to these ideas because the for-profit margins are, are, are very large, even when it's a nonprofit school. I mean, a lot of the money in the charter industry comes not from tuition, uh, but from the leasing. And uh, some of the biggest corporate chains uh, 
and from Florida that are now operating nationally and, and from other places have perfected the idea of buying a, 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 a school or buying a space, converting it to a school, and then charging itself, uh, renting, leasing the space to itself and charging itself some exorbitant amount of, of rent, uh, maybe a million dollars a year for something that on the open market might uh, get half of that or less than half of that. But there are all kinds of fancy real estate deals that have been pulled by charter companies, and there's nobody overseeing them. Much of the Trump and uh, DeVos philosophy is based on the notion that applying business expertise and profit-driven models to government can solve problems better than the public sector. What, over the last uh, few decades, what has happened when this free market um, ideologue model has hit public education? Well, I, I would say that there are, there are not many districts that have gotten this full force. The main thing that happens when you apply the free market model is that the, the people who are selling either charter schools or vouchers make claims that are unsustainable. In the case of charters, and, and, all, and vouchers as well, they say that uh, you can escape a failing school and somehow you will be transformed and you'll be college ready. But it turns out, based on the many studies that have been done, that when the, when the charters and vouchers take the same kids as the public schools, they get the same results. And very often they get worse results because they don't have certified teachers. Uh, many of the state laws allow the charters and vouchers to operate with only half their teachers certified or none of their teachers certified. So if you send kids from a school where there are certified teachers who know what they're doing, uh, to a school where teachers come and go every couple of years and have no certification, you don't get a better education. Uh, but what you do get is a lot of promises, a lot of, of disappointment. And the other thing that's very much part of this market model and business model is to uh, have a lot of churn in the teaching force to keep costs low, because that's always part of the for-profit model, is cutting costs. So the most important way to cut costs is uh, to be non-union, and 90, something like 93% of all charter schools, there are 6,000 charter schools in the country, 93% of them are non-union, and that's so that uh, the teachers have fewer benefits, and uh, it, it's also because they're not expected to stay very long, uh, not long enough to collect a pension, not long enough to uh, care about benefits. So there's a, a lot of turnover of very young teachers working at the low end of the salary scale, and that's a cost-cutting method. Uh, but mostly what you get is promises that, that are not kept. Uh, and we now have, again, a, a lot of evidence, many evaluations. There's no voucher program in the country that anyone can point to and say, that's a, that's a successful voucher program. Uh, and, and in fact, most of the voucher programs get in, uh, no results different from the public schools or worse results, and they have very high attrition as well. It's remarkable that uh, DeVos and her allies can claim to be so concerned about children and low-income children in particular when they're so hostile to unions and workers' rights and those children's parents making a decent living um, in our economy. And the whole, uh, the whole movement for vouchers, charters, high-stakes testing always seems politically to be about blaming government and unionized teachers for problems um, in large car part caused by poverty, segregation, in fu and funding inequity. 
Um, Absolutely. I mean, if you think about DeVos, she really has the same philosophy as the uh, family that owns Walmart, uh, and they have an enormous foundation, the Walton Family Foundation. They're spending now $200 million a year uh, to open new charter schools. They, they claim credit for having opened something like one out of every four charter schools in America. And they always say, we're doing it for the kids. Well, Walmart has over a million employees. And until recently, they have not wanted to pay uh, a decent wage. They've not wanted to pay minimum wage. And even at minimum wage, it's hard for a family to be middle class. But if they really cared about kids, they would give the parents, uh, a million parents, uh, a living wage, and that would have more impact on the children uh, than going to a charter school. But they're using, and I think this is, I hate to say, I think it's cynical, the people who are supporting this movement of charters and vouchers um, include some of the wealthiest people in America. And I think that they are doing a diversionary tactic, and it gets people thinking about, well, maybe we need school choice when what they should be thinking about is, why do, why do we have a tax code that allows some people to have $20 billion and $30 billion and $40 billion? I mean, no one in their lifetime can ever spend that much money, but they don't want to be taxed more. And the DeVosses, uh, in, in one of the articles I read about them, uh, worked very hard to make sure that there was no uh, tax increase on people uh, of their status. So... It would seem to me that when you're worth $5 billion, one would be more magnanimous in terms of saying, tax me. I'm the one who has the money. Uh, that if, if we had, I think, a more sensible tax code, um, we could supply good public schools to everybody. Uh, it's kind of interesting to think, for example, about go back to the Eisenhower administration. Eisenhower was obviously a Republican, uh, and he was no wild-eyed liberal. The marginal tax rate for the highest income bracket was 91% throughout his entire eight years of being president. Now, if Bill Gates' income was taxed at 91% and the Walton family's, which was taxed at 91%, we would have plenty of money for infrastructure uh, repair, creating jobs for for the families who are now without adequate income, and also creating really wonderful public schools in every community. Uh, but the, the economic power of this small number of people at the top of the pyramid has kept tax rates low. And under the Trump administration, they will go even lower. I think that's a really important point because it's not just that corporate school reform is in the economic self-interest of certain people, either directly or indirectly, but it's also sort of in their ideological self-interest in the sense that um, if the reason that there are poor people in these rough situations is because of these, uh, because of unions instead of because of the fact that they're hoarding all of the wealth, well, that that probably right. makes them sleep a little bit better at night. Yep. I think this is uh, one of the great hoaxes of our time. And, and it's a, it's, kind of like watching an illusionist. Uh, I, a few months ago, last September, I went to, uh, took a road trip out west, and we started off in Las Vegas, and there are all these wonderful shows every night, and, and one of them that we saw was an illusionist who was spectacular. And, you know, you couldn't, he kept saying, you couldn't tell what was in his hands, where things went. I think that's the kind of 
issue we're dealing with with the the whole so-called school reform movement because it's not about reform it's about privatization uh, and they know that if they call themselves the privatization movement they wouldn't get very far uh, but they've monopolized the term quite consciously they're, they're reformers they don't want to reform schools they don't want to make them better uh, they want to privatize them they want to turn them into for-profit schools they want to turn them into unregulated schools it was very interesting that in the DeVos hearing uh, before the Senate committee uh, DeVos was asked by Senator Tim Kaine about accountability, and he said, do you believe that all schools that get public money should be held equally accountable? And she said, I believe in accountability. And he said, can I just get a yes or no answer? He kept restating the question again and again, and she said, I believe in accountability. And he could not get her to say, because he was trying to get her to say, that if a religious school takes public money, they too must be accountable. If a charter school takes public money, they too must be accountable. And she would not say it because she doesn't believe it. She doesn't want accountability for either charter schools or religious schools. It was a remarkable line of questioning, um, and she just repeatedly refused to answer the question. And Kane ultimately said, if this were a court of law and I were a lawyer, I would say, Your Honor, please direct the witness to answer the question. Yes. Yes, I mean, the... Um, I think that the hearing was, even though the Democratic members were kept a very short, I think they each had five minutes, and they spent part of their five minutes complaining about the fact that they only had five minutes. Uh, still, they were able to get Ms. DeVos to show that she didn't know anything about education. Uh, she only knows about choice. She doesn't. When asked about children with disabilities, she said she cares about them. When asked about the uh, federal law called IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, she said, well, I would leave that up to the states. And she fell right into a trap because one of the senators, and it may have been uh, McCain or Senator Hassan from New Hampshire, said, so if, if you don't like, if your own state doesn't offer disabilities education, you're supposed to move to another state? And, and then they said, well, you know, don't you know that this is not an optional Law. This is a federal law. Everybody's supposed to abide by IDEA, but she didn't she know acknowledged that. that she, she acknowledged that she was pretty much acknowledged that she was not aware that IDEA is a federal law. Right. She didn't know, and she said she was confused. Well, I don't know what she was confused about, because uh, that's pretty basic law that kids with disabilities have the right to a free and appropriate public education. And what does that tell you about her outlook on education? That she had no clue what one of the most important federal laws regarding education is. I just think that she is uh, unprepared, ill-informed, uh, ignorant of federal education law, ignorant of federal policy. Uh, they could have asked her any question about federal policy, and she would have given that kind of deer-in-the-headlights he expression and smiled and said, I'll, I'll be talking to my aides about this. Uh, I'll turn this over to someone else. She was subjected to pretty sharp questioning by Senator Warren from Massachusetts about higher education, and she made it clear she really doesn't know anything about higher education or, or student debt, and that's one of the biggest problems that's going to land on the secretary's desk uh, because there's about a trillion dollars in student debt outstanding. And uh, at the same time, uh, you know, our, our, we've been exhorted by uh, various political leaders, business leaders that – um, kids have to get, go to college, they have to get college ready, and college is becoming more and more important. Uh, but kids just can't afford college in a lot of places. And the federal money 
available now is nowhere near enough uh, to help a low-income student uh, go to college and a four-year university, a public university, uh, and even community colleges are no longer free. So it's there is a huge problem with this crushing student debt. I don't think she will see it as a problem because it, she was asked, what do you think about free uh, public college? And she said, nothing's free. Well, she's a billionaire. It's not a problem for her. Are you concerned that DeVos will be in a position as secretary to continue to spend her private fortune to fund groups um, that are backing her agenda as secretary, her privatization agenda? You know, norm, normally I would say it's not a problem because when you're in federal office, you're supposed to be completely transparent about how you spend your money, and um, you, you just can't do that. You can't be lobbying at the same time that you're in government. But this is a different government from any that we've ever seen in our lifetime. Uh, you start at the top with the president saying he won't release his tax returns, and then when he makes a decision, we don't know whether it financially benefits him or not. He's not only not released his tax returns, he's not relinquished his business. So he may be making decisions that are uh, bringing him many millions of dollars. Uh, he, he, I mean, I could go on at length about all of his conflicts, but he sets an example for the rest of the administration. Uh, Betsy DeVos has already said she's not going to divest her interest in a company in, in, her, in Grand Rapids, Michigan called NeuroCore, and people that I've, I have been investigating this company, and they find it's a it's a biofeedback company that claims that it can cure autism and uh, all kinds of ailments. And it sounds pretty crackpot, frankly. But it you know maybe a friend of hers owns the company, but she's put millions into it, and she's not going to divest. But as Secretary of Education, she should not be allowed to in, have any holding in any company that her decisions might affect. And I don't know who's going to be enforcing the ethics laws because the president's setting the example that the ethics laws don't apply to him. And so other people might say, well, they don't apply to me either. And if they do, who's going to enforce them? And beyond those financial, potential financial conflicts of interest, um, there's still the possibility that she can and her family can continue to pour money into pro-school choice groups that'll be out there campaigning on behalf of, of the policies that she's pursuing as secretary. Yes, absolutely. Uh, because they can say that the family works as a unit. And uh, there was a wonderful article in Mother Jones by a journalist named Kristen Rizga, R-I-Z-G-A. And, and she said that the family works as a unit. And there, there are several different foundations and Betsy DeVos might say, well, it's not me, it's, uh, you know, it's another family foundation. Um, and if they want to put money into a group that uh, is promoting vouchers and promoting charters, I, I can't impinge on their freedom to do that. So she's in this kind of peculiar position, as is Donald Trump, where he says, well, my children are taking over my business, and therefore it's not my business anymore. I mean, nobody's fooled by that, and yet he's doing it. So she can say... Um, well, my foundation's not putting money in, but there are all those other DeVos foundations and all those other family members, all of whom are super conservative, very right-wing, uh, funding Christian evangelical things. I was just reading today that Huffington Post had an article about uh, her funding of an organization. To It's called, I think, the Student Statesmanship Institute, and they had a speech by one of its uh, spokespeople saying, 
Well, we, we can look to people like Stalin and Hitler and others uh, who understood that you have to indoctrinate the youth in order to change a culture. Well, that wasn't Betsy DeVos speaking, but she's funding this group. And, you know, it's very disturbing. Uh, people who are in cabinet positions should not be affiliated, should not be funding uh, organizations that have extremist views um, of any kind. Earlier, you mentioned uh, the Obama administration's Race to the Top initiative, with which leveraged $4 billion to pressure states around the country to expand charters and uh, increase the use of high-stakes testing. This really seems to be an issue, public education, <clears throat> where, where corporate-aligned Democrats, including Obama, really helped lay the groundwork for the Trump administration's extreme hostility towards public ed. Um, what, what impact um, has the Democratic... Uh, um, establishment's embrace of, of corporate ed reform from Obama to Rahm Emanuel. What what impact has that had in laying the groundwork um, for for DeVos's and Trump's agenda? It's telling, I think, that Trump uh, was was entertaining Michelle Rhee also as a possible pick, a, yes. a self-proclaimed Democrat. Well, yes, right. He's also interviewed um, Eva Moskowitz, who is another favorite of the hedge fund managers and. New York and elsewhere, and, and who has many, many millions of dollars to spend on her charter schools. I mean, the, the Obama administration uh, pushed very hard for charter schools, and uh, I mean, there are any number of reasons why they did that, but I think the basic reason is it's just money. I mean, every campaign needs money to run on, and uh, there's a group called Democrats for Education Reform. Uh, they're hedge fund managers. They're active all over the country, and they're pushing the Democratic Party to accept charters. Now, the problem here is that once you accept charters, you have persuaded people that it's a good thing to to fund something that's an alternative to public schools. And so it's not that big a leap to go from charters to vouchers. I mean, uh, I know that President Obama drew that line in the sand, but it's a very um, indistinct line in the sand. And once you say, we're not going to support public schools, we're going to open up these privately managed schools uh, who are not accountable and not transparent, we're going to give them the money with no oversight because there's so many thousands of them who's, who can oversee them. And then we're going to say, well, you know, that they're public schools. I mean, the curious thing about charters is that whenever they have been uh, called into court for violating some law, whenever they've been uh, gone before the National Labor Relations Board, Charter operators always say, we are not state actors, we are private corporations. Therefore, we're not bound to abide by the state law uh, that affects uh, student discipline or, or student rights, and we're not, we're not bound by uh, the labor law of the state. So, but they always say, we're not state actors, we're private corporations. Now, you cannot be a public school if you're not a state actor. Public schools are state actors. So they're, they're, they're walking this double line, the charters are, and the Obama administration was, oh, not only were, were they overwhelmingly pro-charter, they seldom uh, said anything good about a public school. The president and secretary were always visiting charter schools and talking about how great they were. But worse than that, they uh, spouted the narrative that public schools are failing, 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 failing. Nothing's ever good enough. We're being beaten by this, the competition. We're not preparing our children. Um, people who opt out of testing are, just don't want to hear that their, their, their brilliant little son isn't so brilliant any, anymore. 
um, this was all nonsense. And I published a book in 2013 called Reign of Error, in which I responded to this whole failing schools narrative. It's, a, it's simply a lie. Uh, the, the reality is, and I went into great detail, the test scores on the national test called NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, are the highest they've ever been in history. They've, they leveled off in 2015 for the first time in many years, and I believe that was a response to the confusion caused by Common Core um, and by all of this um, rhetoric from the Obama administration. But we have had an unbroken line of test score improvements for the last 40 years, so that today the test scores of white, black, Hispanic, and Asian kids are the highest they've ever been. Level, again, I leveled off in 2015, and that's by the authoritative National Assessment of Educational Progress. Graduation rates are the highest they've ever been for every single group, white, black, Hispanic, and Asian. And the dropout and the rate NA- is the lowest that it's ever been. Pardon? And the NAEP, the NAEP unlike high-stakes standardized testing, because it doesn't have stakes attached, um, is actually of much better diagnostic value than, than your average uh, no-child-left-behind type, type test. Right. It's 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 a sampling test, and and no no one it doesn't can't be connected to any particular student or for that matter any particular school, but you can say about the districts that participate, and about the, all the states participate, uh, you can see a trend line, and the trend line is that uh, scores have been going up 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 for 40 years, and that this claim that our schools are failing that we used to be first we're no longer first, and, you know there so there are four data points. One is highest scores, test scores ever, at least in the last 40 years, and they were higher. Uh, I mean, what kids are doing today now is beyond the capacity of most adults, but uh, I won't even get into that. It's just a reality. Uh, Graduation rates higher than ever, dropout rates lower than ever. And the fourth thing is the international test scores, and this is where people like Michelle Rhee and uh, Arnie Duncan and uh, others hang their hat, and they say, oh, but we're – we're only 23rd. Why aren't we first? We used to be first. And, and what I show in my book is we were never first. In fact, the first international test was given in 1964. It was a test of mathematics. There were 12 nations participating. And our 8th graders took it and 12th graders took it. They came, One grade came in last. The other one came in next to last. So this myth that we, we used to be first in the world and now we're only in the middle is a myth. Uh, the other thing to know is that in the many, many tests that have been given since then, we were never number one. We were usually in the middle. And uh, our scores, this is, by the way, something to know about standardized test scores, that they reflected uh, tremendous income inequality. Uh, the more there is income inequality, the, the, the bigger the gap from top to bottom. And so we have a lot of very poor kids who do very poorly. Uh, our kids who are come from uh, affluent homes do very well. But in the end, bottom line, I don't think the international test scores mean anything anyway, because in the 50 years after uh, those first tests in 1964, our economy outperformed all 11 other nations that we were up against. So what do the test scores mean? They're the test scores of 15-year-olds, in some cases younger children, but usually 15-year-olds, and it doesn't predict the future. We are the most powerful nation in the world, at least until now, and our, the test scores on those international tests predict nothing. Yet the yet the school choice corporate reform movement has been very successful 
in its marketing campaign that pointing to districts like Philadelphia, where a Republican governor uh, cut massive funds from a system that was already overfunded because uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, as in throughout the country, uh, schools are funded by local property taxes. And so a poor city like Philadelphia has never been able to fund its uh, its schools uh, at a sufficient level. And uh, they're able to point to a city like that with so much concentration, concentrated poverty and so much underfunding and say, look, public education as a whole is failing. And it seems to me that one reason that they've been so successful at this marketing campaign, um, it's really a remarkable movement to observe because they're able, more than anything I've ever seen, to be able to very much tailor their message to specific audiences. So you have this right-wing corporate education reform movement that's very Christian supremacist uh, that Betsy DeVos represents, that's pro-vouchers. And then you have Democrats for Education Reform and uh, all of the groups and all the local groups in cities like Philadelphia that say we're not pro-vouchers. Um, and you know Obama is part of that. Um, but at the end of the day, as you said, um, they're both partaking um, in a delegitimization and scapegoating of the public school system that blames teach, teachers, unionized teachers, for these right. profound social economic, socioeconomic problems that our country refuses to address. Well, here's the thing, and it's very important for people to understand this, and that's that standardized test scores are a reflection of family income and family education. So wherever family income and education are high, the scores are high. Where family income and education are low, uh, the scores are low. So you have a measure that isn't telling you what you really need to know, which is, uh, you know, like what are the needs of the, of the schools? How can we take the schools that exist and make them better? Uh, what do we need to do to uh, attract the best teachers, to hold on to the best teachers? What do we need to do for the specific kids that, that attend that school? You learn nothing diagnostic from a standardized test, particularly because the results come in usually a year after the test is given and the kids have a different teacher. But it doesn't matter. It's a flawed instrument. The instrument itself is simply a snapshot at a moment, and it tells you that where kids are very poor and where they're living in segregation, scores will be low. So the answer to that, it would seem to me, is go to the root causes, which is poverty and segregation, and do something about it, uh, but the answer that, that Arnie Duncan and, and President Obama took was, uh, let's close schools and open new schools. Let's turn the schools over to private corporations. That doesn't work. It doesn't address the, the, the root of the problem because the parents and, are still poor uh, and the kids are still living in segregation. If anything, charter schools are even more segregated than public schools. And not only does it not address the root of the problem, right, it also uh, – in- uh, creates new problems by warping the entire classroom experience, encouraging teachers to teach to the test, and also, as we saw in Philly and Atlanta and elsewhere, cheat to the test. Right. I mean, when you make the test that important, when you say, as Race at the Top did and as No Child Left Behind did, when you say, we're going to close your school if you don't get your test scores up, we're going to fire the teachers, we're going to give you a bonus if the scores go up, when there are all these draconian punishments and some awards attached to it, then you get terrible results. The first thing that happens, the first thing that happens is that the curriculum is narrowed. And so kids may not get um, physical education. Well, that's terrible. Physical education is crucial to to growth and and also, you know, just to stimulating people's ability to concentrate. Um, 
but kids lose history, they lose civics, they lose foreign languages, they, it, it, they lose science, they, they lose everything except math and reading. And the focus there is on what's the right answer. And if you think about it, um, we're seeing testing dropping down into lower and lower grades because you have to prepare the first graders for the second grade, you have to prepare the second graders for the third grade, and then the, the stakes attached to the tests get higher and the pressure is really on. Why, what are we doing to our children? I mean, this is crazy. This is not education. The people who are funding this whole corporate reform movement, they don't send their, their children to schools that are subject to that pressure. They send their, their children to schools where the class sizes are small, where there's time for lively discussions and debates, where they can have a class of 15 kids uh, meeting with an experienced teacher and thinking uh, of of what are the questions, not focusing on what are the answers. Yeah, it's uh, liberal arts for affluent white kids and test prep boot camps for poor children of color. Yes, exactly. One silver lining politically, I think, here maybe, is that DeVos's brazen extremism will make it easier for the education left to go after corporate reform Democrats like Cory Booker, who just last year appeared at the policy summit of DeVos's American Federation for Children, calling it an incredible organization and imploring those in attendance to stay faithful to the work we are doing. Do you think that there might be an opening here politically? Well, I think that is probably <clears throat> the only silver lining uh, to DeVos's appointment is that she really makes it hard for uh, Democrats, whether it's Cory Booker or uh, Michael Bennett from Colorado, or there are a number of uh, Andrew Cuomo from New York, uh, the governor of Connecticut, Daniel Malloy. These are all Democrats who've been very, very pro-charter, and they don't want to be in the same boat with Betsy DeVos and her religious extremism, and Donald Trump, for that matter. So I think that at some point they may have to make a choice, and um, their funding depends on staying faithful to charters. So I think it's going to be difficult for them. And I think particularly for Cory Booker, because he's, he actually supports vouchers, uh, and there are other Democrats who do. So where does he go? I mean, as I said, the silver lining is she doesn't allow the, the Democrats for education reform types, the, the hedge fund types, to be able to pretend that they're liberals, because there's nothing liberal about destroying the public school system. One weird thing about this election, I mean, Betsy DeVos has now become one of the most divisive, uh, one of Trump's most divisive cabinet nominees. But during the presidential campaign, both the primary and the general election, public education was rarely, rarely discussed, um, right. even as it's been this huge issue in, in states and localities, Chicago, Philly, Kansas, everywhere. Why, why don't you think public ed made it on the radar last year? I think that um, it should have been in the Democratic primary for sure, because it's something that concerns uh, parents a lot, and there are a lot of parents in this country. Uh, I think the reason it wasn't discussed is that Hillary Clinton was in an awkward position. Uh, Bill Clinton was very pro-charter. She has been pro-charter. I, th I think she would have, she understood, and she actually made a statement at one point in the middle of the primaries where she said some charters are not open to all kids and that has to change and then the hedge fund people came down so hard on her that uh, uh, her aides backed away and say well she didn't really mean that she's really pro-charter so she was in this awkward position of she didn't want to offend the money people uh, Bernie Sanders when he was asked about charters said he was in favor of public charters but not private charters 
Well, I don't know what he meant by that. Uh, and he's on the education committee. So I don't think that either of the candidates, um, I think probably Hillary understood the issue and was trying to uh, somehow talk around it. Uh, I'm not sure that Bernie understood the issue. He he didn't really understand that there's no such thing as a, a public charter. That if if you're a charter person, you say that charters are public schools. And if you're not a charter person, you say, well, they're actually private schools getting public funding. So I'm not sure which one he understood. Yeah, I think I think for a lot of um, supporters of Bernie Sanders on the left in the education world, that um, his failure to to grasp that um, was was frustrating and also a huge missed opportunity to outflank Clinton on the left as he did on so many other issues. Right. I do think that the one person in the contest who real who really understood was Tim Kaine. Uh, Tim Kaine's uh, wife was Secretary of Education in Virginia, and he he really did get it. And he wrote a very powerful letter against DeVos uh, in which he said, you know, we need a secretary who's behind public schools. And he knows there's a difference between charter schools and, and public schools. One last question, which is, we were talking earlier about the the ideological and financial and other motivations and political motivations um, that these uh, super rich funders of of corporate school reform have. Why is it um, the Devo- and the Devosses uh, are uh, their money comes from Amway on one side and auto parts and auto parts magnate on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 typically you see a lot of people from finance and tech circles. Um, very active in corporate ed reform. Why? Why? Why those industries in particular? Well, I, I think my guess is that uh, it's a combination of motives. One is ideological, uh, just a belief that the free market's always better uh, than any kind of government uh, supplied good would be, or good or service. Um, and also, just a you know, saying it worked for me, and I would never want to work in a bureaucracy. Why would anyone else? Uh, they believe in competition because that's the world they live in, and they don't understand that there are some public uh, services that don't get better by competition. It actually, in the case of schools, they get weaker because every dollar for a, that would go to a voucher or a charter is taken away from a public school. So if you imagine a city like New York, for instance, where 10% of the kids are in charter schools, every dollar that's in the charters is taken out of the public schools. So the public schools where most kids are enrolled, 90% of the kids are enrolled, uh, have less money, have larger class size, have, have, to, have to cut back on teachers and have to cut back on programs because they're also supporting the charters. And that money is flowing out, and it's, they can't really cut uh, what they're offering uh, without hurting the kids. And there are many districts in, in throughout Pennsylvania, California, Ohio, Michigan, any district you could think of where they're supporting charters, the public schools are weaker because of the competition because they have less money to provide a good education. I lied. One last question, um, which is that um, with DeVos um, uh, likely being the next secretary of education uh, and with generally the the advance of of corporate school reform in, in districts and state houses, around the country, there's a lot to be depressed about, but there's also been some uh, signs for optimism, like the Chicago teacher strike and that movement, which ultimately uh, led to Rahm Emanuel uh, getting caught up in a surprise 
um, recall race for his reelection. What what do you see as the way forward for um, for parents, for teachers out there organizing to not only defend but but also uh, ensure that public education in the United States flourishes uh, in the years ahead? Well. Uh, to begin with, there was some, some really good news just in the last election, although it was overshadowed by uh, the election of somebody who is hostile to public education, may never have actually been in a public school except for once when he was principal for a day in New York City. Um, but the good news was that Massachusetts had a hotly contested uh, referendum about whether to expand charter schools, and it was defeated overwhelmingly around exactly the issues that should have been defeated around. People said, we don't want our public schools to lose money. We don't want privatization. Uh, the hedge fund managers poured in something like $26 million into the campaign. That There had never been a referendum with so much money spent on it. The unions raised about $12 million. So the unions were outspent more than two to one. And still the, the vote was overwhelmingly anti-charter. That was a huge victory, and uh, nobody knew how that was going to come out. Uh, similarly, in Georgia, there was a, an election about whether to give the governor the power to basically seize public schools and give them to charters. And it was portrayed as, here's how to improve public schools, uh, get let the governor seize them and give them to, to charter operators. That was defeated 60-40. So in both Massachusetts and Georgia, the public got it. And they said, no, we don't want our schools taken over by corporations. We don't want people based in some other state running our schools. We want our local community schools, and we want, we want democracy. We want local people to decide what's best for our schools. Those were very good signs. The other third thing that happened this past fall was that the NAACP passed a stunning resolution saying that there should be a moratorium on new charters until charters became accountable and transparent and stop skimming and, and cherry-picking the students they wanted and stop destabilizing communities. So that was, that was enormous because that was the first time that the civil rights community, the most single most important organization of the civil rights community, said uh, stop perpetrating this fraud, that charters are part of the civil rights movement. They're not. Uh, so I think that we have to see more of that kind of activism. We need public awareness. Uh, I'm, I'm very engaged in an organization called the Network for Public Education. We operate on a shoestring, uh, but we now have over 300,000 members. And the reason we have so many members is that people are worried about what Trump and DeVos will do to public schools. And so I would say... Uh, Meet your allies, contact Network for Public Education. We, the reason we're a network is we connect people in every state with their allies so that they can join organizations locally in their own community, in their own state, and become active to uh, testify in legislative hearings, to write letters to the editor, uh, and to become a force to say, hands off our public schools. Thank you so much, Diane. Thank you, Daniel, and good luck. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world, in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week or two. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, Jeffrey Brodsky, and Liza Yeager. Music by Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever it is you get podcasts so you can subscribe and leave us a very nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, and so does telling your friends. 
please make more propaganda on our behalf. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking to George Chicarello Marr about white genocide and Mark Blythe about austerity and the rise of the far right. 